salutations. Welcome back to another episode of Retcon, the podcast of assorted geekery. I'm Rick Marshall, and today we're talking Civil War. Marvel's Captain America Civil War hits theaters soon, pitting the studio's heroes against each other in an all-out battle that turns good guy against good guy. The film gets its title, and probably more than that, from the Civil War comic book series written by Mark Miller and penciled by artist Steve McNiven. That 2006 series imagined a Marvel universe in which a superhero-related disaster in Stamford, Connecticut, prompts the federal government to pass the Superhero Registration Act, a bill that requires costumed heroes to register their identities and become official law enforcement agents. Naturally, that idea doesn't sit well with some of Marvel's superheroes, and the battle lines are eventually drawn, with Iron Man's support of the bill and Captain America opposing it. The series famously explored the balance between security and freedom in society, albeit a society where a scientist can turn into a massive green monster and a teenager can walk on walls like a spider, but you get the idea. It was a serious turn for the Marvel Universe that really did change everything for quite a few superheroes, at least until the next reboot. In honor of the impending arrival of Captain America Civil War, I spoke to attorney James Daly, the co-author of the 2012 book The Law of Superheroes and creator of the long-running Law in the Multiverse blog that explores elements of the superhero world from a legal perspective. Along with cross-examining him about Civil War and the Superhero Registration Act, I also made sure to get his take on a certain Marvel superhero who fights crime in the courtroom by day in the streets of Hell's Kitchen at night. James, uh, you spent quite a few years now uh, taking deep dives into the legal themes of uh, comic book universes. How did you get started exploring this uh, unique aspect of superheroes and in, in their stories? Well, I've always been interested in comic books, uh, and I'm a lawyer by training, so there's the germ of the idea, I guess, was, was there. And I was having dinner with my wife and a couple of friends of ours, and the conversation turned to comics and to superheroes, and specifically to Superman and his uh, ability to see through walls, and sort of talked about, well, if everybody on Krypton could see through walls, then either they would have to, you know, all line their walls with lead, or their privacy laws would be very different, and a friend of mine suggested, well, you should write a blog about that kind of uh, thing, and so I, I did, uh, thinking at first that it would just be, uh, you know, me kind of putting my thoughts out into the void, and uh, uh, then I'd probably get bored of it after a month or so, And but I actually turned out to be unexpectedly popular. Um, I should note, by the way, that I'm fully aware that Kryptonians on Krypton do not have Superman's powers and cannot see through walls. And this would be a, sort of a hypothetical situation. I have to mention that because whenever I don't, I get mail about it. It is an important clarification. We have Captain America Civil War coming out uh, in a little while here, and, and we still don't know too much about Marvel's Civil War storyline, how much that's going to inform uh, the movie uh, itself, the storyline from the comics, that is. But the themes of that story arc, uh, balance between civil liberties and national security, a uh, relationship between perception and policy, all those things, they're, they're still hot-button issues today, especially during election season. Looking back in that storyline, how realistic is it that, that Congress could pass legislation that requires uh, anyone with superhuman abilities to, to register with the government? Well, it depends on whether or not you want to look exactly at the law as it's described in the comics, or you want to talk about generally this kind of idea. Unfortunately, the comics never really nailed down exactly how the law was structured and exactly what it entailed, which uh, I can understand. It gives the, the writers some flexibility to tell the stories they want to tell, which is important when you're talking about a dozen or more different storylines for the different major characters. But the general idea of being able to essentially say if you want to you you know you that you can't go around fighting crime in a costumed you know secret way 
unless you're working for the government, um, and specifically like drafting basically superheroes to to work on behalf of the government. Uh, yeah, I think that that's something that constitutionally could happen. It would really push the the edges of a, of both the commerce clause and a, to a certain extent the, the draft power. But it is it is possible to imagine how how that could be justified legally. Oh, okay. So so this is something that could actually that could actually happen. Uh, yeah, the draft power in particular is basically unlimited. Congress could draft children if it wanted to. Uh, and and it could also draft perhaps not specific individuals, say you know, John Doe must now show up to, to be drafted, but could very likely draft classes of people, say everyone with powers. Uh, certainly people with particular uh, skills and abilities, like language abilities, for example, can be drafted. The law already contemplates drafting them uh, preferentially over uh, the general population. And, and of course, there's age and gender limitations as well. So uh, the draft power is basically unlimited. The Supreme Court's held that, that the Congress can pretty well do what it wants in that area. So that handles the getting superpowered individuals to work for the government, albeit a little complicated because they would be part of the military and using the military to fight ordinary crime is uh, limited by the Posse Comitatus Act, but that is a law that could potentially be modified as well. So. So yeah, so that, that aspect of things is actually is pretty straightforward. The maybe slightly more difficult is having the federal government pass a law that says you can't fight crime in a costume unless you're working for us. It's a little harder to justify that on Commerce Clause grounds, um, but it but with a little a little bit of a stretch, you can get there. I think. Oh okay. Well, uh, in in the Civil War comic, I mean, Iron Man becomes uh, this sort of public face of, of the Superhuman Registration Act, uh, and his rationale for it is pretty forward, uh, pretty straightforward. The people with super superhuman abilities need to have oversight and training and that sort of thing. Uh, Captain America, on the other hand, argues that superheroes need to keep their identities secret in order to do what they do without endangering their loved ones and that sort of thing. Is there any sort of legal precedent for, for his side of things? Would he have a good case if he sort of took this to court uh, rather than sort of brawling with, you know, Iron Man and, and uh, the heroes on the other side about it? Well, I mean, he could certainly try to fight the law as such, um, but his overall position that uh, superheroes need uh, to be anonymous, need the, or at least need the option of being anonymous in order to do what they do, uh, probably doesn't hold up. For one thing, it's, it's pointed out that several major superheroes like the Fantastic Four, like Iron Man, like Captain America, their secret identities, they're not secret. It is well known who they all are. And some of them have been public from the very beginning, like the Fantastic Four. So that that's kind of an important factual counter-argument. But, but more importantly, perhaps, is that actually being anonymous is a problem for a superhero who actually wants to sort of fight crime and be a part of the effective part of the system as opposed to somebody like the Punisher who just goes out and uh, kills or maims bad guys. If the goal is to apprehend criminals that the regular police can't handle and then see to it that they are dealt with through the justice system in the sort of the proper legal way, then the fact that the person who has the best evidence against the villain, the, you know, the eyewitness testimony and all that kind of thing, and was there at the scene, blah, 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 that that person can't testify at, at trial because they refuse to reveal their identity uh, is a real problem. 
um, and the, the, the confrontation clause of the Constitution that allows criminal defendants to demand to confront the witnesses against them, as well as just testifying under oath, means that it's, it's it would be impossible to have somebody testify in behind a mask. The courts are actually quite, quite clear about that. And in fact, Justice Scalia, a recently deceased, uh, was quite the proponent of criminal defendants' rights in, in those kinds of cases, uh, to the point that the Supreme Court has held that, for example, if it, in child molestation cases, that you can't even have the the child be testifying, you know, away from the the defendant because I mean you can imagine why you would maybe not want to put the child in the same room as the person who allegedly abused them, and yet the the courts have held that you know the the confrontation clause is pretty pretty absolute. Wow. So a lot of those times when we see in comics and and even in movies and such when uh, these masked superheroes sort of stop someone in the act and tie them up or restrain them and leave them for the police to find, uh, they probably wouldn't have much of a case when the police do find them? Well, their case would certainly be a lot harder than it would be. In some cases, they may be found with contraband or that they just simply, or the, or the problem may just simply be getting a hold of them. You know, you know, there's plenty of evidence against them. It's just that because of their abilities, it's hard to ca- physically catch and apprehend them. And in those cases, it's maybe not the worst thing. But in a lot of cases, the only real testimony may necessarily be from the one person Person who's not around to give it. Interesting. Well, uh, switching gears a bit, uh, the second season of Marvel's Daredevil was just released on Netflix uh, a few weeks ago, and, and I think this one is particularly interesting to, to talk with you about. Uh, you know, the title character is a defense attorney by day and a masked vigilante by night. Before we even in talk about the themes in the show, I, I have to ask, is this every attorney's favorite superhero? I, I think it's certainly in the running, depending on the kinds of themes uh, they're interested in. Uh, She-Hulk um, is uh, another uh, superhero by night, attorney by day character. And if, if, you, if your comic book preferences lean more towards the, the light and comedic, then, uh, then I think She-Hulk is, uh, is a good choice. I feel like something that's more commonly a bit more serious than, than Daredevil's a good one. Although Daredevil comics under Mark Wade had, had been uh, quite, quite funny as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so in, in Daredevil, he uh, he ends up getting involved with a lot of cases that require him to spend you know a lot of time fighting criminals and probably just as much time as he spends in the courtroom. So in the real world, it feels like his tactics might not lend themselves to a lot of wins in court uh, for some of the reasons that you've sort of outlined now. What's your take on the perils of leading that kind of double life, taking that sort of hands-on approach to cases? Well, there's certainly tremendous ethical issues, not least of which is that Daredevil, as he's, especially as he's portrayed in the Netflix series, moves kind of on the wrong side of the law a lot, not in an overtly criminal way, but in a definitely pushing the boundaries, you know, uh, or, or, or breaking them a bit uh, kind of way. And attorneys simply aren't supposed to do that. I mean, it kind of may seem obvious, but ethically, attorneys are prohibited from breaking the law. So um, so that's a problem. And it's, it's also a problem the way he often uses evidence that he obtains inappropriately in order to decide what's going to, what he's going to do next in a case. So that's that's also an issue, uh, and the the fact that the, the well the, the law firm in general is uh, of is his firm with Foggy Nelson is uh, lots of ethical issues regarding, for example, uh, Nelson's relationship with a former client and, and that kind of thing that uh, probably most attorneys would say is uh, a bit dicey. <laughs> well, uh, from your perspective, I mean, uh, what you've seen comics notwithstanding in the Netflix show is Matt Murdock a good lawyer in in your mind? Um, he's clearly an effective one. Whether he's a good one, I think, probably depends a little bit on how much uh, how important ethics are. Uh, in uh, in in 
some other versions of the Daredevil storyline, he's a, a bit more upstanding and a bit less willing to bend the rules. But but clearly the Netflix show wants to more directly grapple with that that conflict uh, between uh, being an effective superhero, being an effective attorney, um, and that's and that's a fair uh, conflict to, to look at. Well, between the Marvel movies, uh, we recently had Batman uh, v Superman uh, deal with some of the ramifications of superhero actions in, in, in court setting. She-Hulk, Daredevil, all of these. Why, why do you think that issues of, of the law, legal issues, and superhero stories keep sort of overlapping uh, in, in popular culture now? Well, I think that it's part of taking the story seriously, that if you really want to think one step further than just face value about these kinds of stories, if you want to consider them part of a, a broader universe, then you not necessarily have to think about how it interacts with the law, especially when so many of the superheroes make you know, overt claims that they are fighting on behalf of the law, on behalf of justice. And so to take to not take that at face value, but to think, well, are they really, you know, are, are they actually acting legally themselves? Are they actually uh, advancing the causes of justice? And especially, are they doing it in a just way? I think that those are you know, important questions to consider. And I think they're important questions to consider in, in all kinds of media. Any, anytime you have a, a hero or a protagonist, you know, we should, we should think critically about well, you know, so it's all well and good that at the end of the day, the, the bad guys are hurt and the good guys are doing fine, but how did we get there and does it really help in the long run? But so, yeah, so I think that those are sort of natural questions to ask. Well, in recent years, too, uh, uh, we've had some of these real-life, real-world superheroes popping up on the scene. Um, there was the was it Phoenix Jackson, I think, was one. Another state there, they had uh, somebody kind of dressing up in costumes, going out, fighting crime in, in their ways. But it's, it's raised some important sort of issues uh, related to some of the ones you've, you've talked about here. Are these sort of issues that you're, you're following kind of closely, give your connection both, you know, sort of superheroes and legal matters? I don't follow them too closely because I usually don't write about them. I try to stick to purely fictional uh, scenarios rather than uh, real-world legal issues too much. Uh, they're, they're a little less controversial, and I don't want to give the impression of giving anybody legal advice. But uh, Phoenix Jones, I think is his name, um, is uh, an example of, uh, yeah, the real-life, real-world superhero movement. And uh, there have been other groups, like the Guardian Angels, for example, who have tried to supplement what they see as uh, a failing on the, the part of the police to adequately protect uh, their own communities, either just simply not putting out enough resources or not using them in a, in a fair or appropriate way. Um, the difficulty is doing so while still staying on the right side of the law themselves. It's, it's quite a tall order. The, the law generally frowns on what's called self-help, so taking matters into one's own hands. And uh, it can be difficult, I think, for people to, to stay on the right side of that, especially especially in a, in a way that doesn't involve uh, you know, physical violence and that kind of thing. And part of the difficulty is that in addition to the law sort of frowning on ordinary individuals doing things like uh, self-defense, defense of others, uh, arrests, you know, citizens' arrests, um, and it makes that sort of difficult, not impossible, but, but a little difficult to do. Police have a lot of legal benefits and protections, privileges, that make it easier for them to do their job without worrying too much about occasionally slipping up. Now, whether that's a good thing or not is a whole other question, um, and one that I tend to try to avoid uh, on the on the blog and in the book. But 
but yeah, those are that's that's kind of the issue is that it's 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 hard to do right. And this is the same thing with superheroes in comic books is that very few of them actually do stay entirely on the right side of the law all the time or even most of the time. Oh, well that's this has been fascinating, I, uh, James. I thank you so much for uh, sort of geeking out with me a bit here and offering your insight on on civil war and superhero registration and superhero attorneys among everything else we've been talking about. Uh, it's been enlightening to say the least. Well, thank you very much. That was attorney James Daly, co-author of The Law of Superheroes and creator of the Law in the Multiverse blog. This has been Retcon, a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Our producers are Jessica Blaustein-Marshall, Patrick Garrett, and Dave Hopper. I'm Rick Marshall. Thanks for listening. <laughs>